This is Medieval Death Trip for Friday, March 13th, 2015, Episode 9, Concerning the Wretched Fate of a Grammar Teacher. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane, and I should apologize for the somewhat late release of today's episode. Midterm grading hit me hard this weekend uh, and this week, Um, and indeed, it's still not quite over, Uh, and so I didn't have quite as much time as I thought I would to get the recording done. But my grading woes put me right in sync with our text for today. For this episode and the next, we're going to do something a little bit different uh, from what we usually do here. As you just heard seconds ago, the tagline for this podcast promises to explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. In our episodes so far, we've mainly focused on the weirdness, and I think it's about time to bring in a bit of the wit. Rest assured, though, uh, even the wit is marbled with weirdness, um, the kind that comes in part from the cultural gulf between medieval rhetorical commonplaces and our own, uh, but also from the deliberate playfulness of our author for today. One of the reasons I put wit alongside weirdness in this show's tagline goes back to the principles uh, I laid out in the prologue episode. I don't want this show to just be an exercise in gawping at how bizarre the Middle Ages can seem to a 21st century person, Uh, though I also don't want to deny that this difference, this cultural frisson, if you will, uh, that it can be fun and engaging. But I want to balance the weird with at least some light seasoning of medieval texts that are fun and interesting because the author is actually trying to be fun and interesting. There's a wealth of delightful imagery and off-kilter allegory and sharp-tongued satire outside of the canonical literary texts of the Middle Ages. We know that Chaucer loves a dirty joke or an offbeat allegory, um, but he's not the only one. Uh, And I want to bring some of those other voices in alongside uh, our more categorically death-trippy bits of startling or gruesome history writing. So, today's text comes from the Labyrinthus of Eberhard the German. Now, we don't know much about Eberhard the German, uh, and indeed there's a touch of ambiguity about whether or not he might um, be the same as some other known Eberhards or Everards out there. Um, But what we can ascertain is that he lived and wrote in the mid-13th century. He was probably of German extraction, studied in Paris and Orleans, or Paris and Orléans, I suppose, and uh, went on to teach as a rector scholarium, or schoolmaster, um, in Bremen. He's mainly known for the Labyrinthus, which uh, is a kind of textbook of rhetoric written in Latin verse. Uh, it's in the same genre as the much more famous uh, Poetria Nova of Geoffrey of Vinsof, which is the text that any of you who have taken an in-depth Chaucer class might well have encountered at some point. These are medieval how-to books for writing Latin poetry and other forms of ornamented discourse. Uh, Interestingly, the Labyrinthus appears to be written for more advanced scholars or even fellow teachers or prospective teachers rather than for uh, students of rhetoric, um, 
which is who most of the other handbooks are uh, designed for. This is relevant to today's reading because today we'll be hearing the opening section of Eberhard's Labyrinth, which is about the ill-starred fate that awaits the poor child doomed from birth to be a teacher of Latin grammar, um, which is not a message you would necessarily expect a teacher to direct towards their students, uh, though I suppose I've known some unabashedly self-pitying teachers in my time, and I've probably been one myself on occasion. Um, but this is the kind of lament a frustrated school teacher might dump on an apprentice um, more than on their classroom. Before we get to Eberhard's text, uh, let's talk a little bit about medieval school teachers circa the 13th century. First, I'm sure it goes without saying that formal education uh, at this time was pretty much reserved for the wealthy and the elite, with just a few exceptions here and there. Most of the education ordinary people needed and received uh, wasn't done in a classroom setting, of course. All children would be educated by their communities to some degree. They would learn the oral vernacular culture of their society from proverbs and precepts to fables and epics, as well as histories from local and family memory up to national and biblical narratives. Uh, and presumably they'd pick up social and trade skills from firsthand experience and practice. Most of the lore that an ordinary person needed was folklore, uh, and you picked it up from the folk you knew in the ordinary work of day-to-day -day living. The classroom, as we would recognize it, was a much more rarefied space. And what was taught in these classrooms was rather rarefied material. Uh, they earned the label grammar schools for a very good reason. They really did have one primary purpose, uh, and that was the learning of Latin. That's why you would go to one of these schools. And the reason to learn Latin uh, was to pursue a clerical career, which generally meant becoming a member of the clergy, um, even though your actual career might uh, be what we would call white-collar work rather than pastoral priestly work. Uh, but these schools were set up for essentially vocational training. Um, and that these classrooms accomplished some larger general education goals by providing an introduction to the branches of the liberal arts uh, was almost incidental. But even these arts were mostly for the more advanced students. As we'll hear from Eberhard, one of the grammar master's burdens is that he doesn't get to teach the fun stuff, but is stuck going over uh, again and again the rudimentary texts, which are easily comprehended by beginners. Two of these introductory textbooks stand out um, and get name-checked by Eberard in today's selection, though it's, it's also worth noting that the students and probably even many of the teachers wouldn't have had these in front of them as books. Um, a lot of the learning would have been done through recitation and uh, repetition rather than working from um, a codex. But the first of these books was the Grammar of Donatus, uh, a 4th century grammarian. Donatus provides a kind of primer in Latin with a focus on speaking the language correctly and avoiding faults. Uh, his book, used rather mind-bogglingly for nearly a thousand years as a basic Latin learning text, um, got the nickname The Font of Tears, an epithet that Eberhard alludes to in today's passage. Um, and it gets its name for the suffering that it caused generation after generation of student. And, of course, Donatus is itself 
a Latin text. It's not a bilingual textbook, um, though presumably the grammar teacher would be translating for his students until they uh, grew more confident. Um, language learning pedagogy at this time was not particularly uh, enlightened, and no doubt it worked at least partly on a principle of immersion. It reminds me of a detail from Horatio Hornblower, where Horatio apparently teaches himself Spanish by means of a dictionary and a copy of Don Quixote. That image, that concept has stuck with me as a kind of uh, romanticized ideal of language learning, um, but it's not a terribly effective strategy. There's a degree to which a lot of dead languages, uh, especially a lot of medieval vernaculars, are still taught today in ways that aren't all that different from Horatio's uh, approach. One of the Old Norse textbooks um, that I used basically consisted of a section that was a grammar, outlining all the declensions in the conjugations, and then a glossary of words, and then a selection of passages for translation. And that was how you were meant to pick up the language and learn how to use it. Uh, there are more and more textbooks now that try to use a more conversational and progressive approach, um, but it's still not uncommon to find uh, what is essentially medieval pedagogy alive and well in those classes offered once every four years on the fringes of your foreign language department. Anyway, the other starting text, uh, the text that provided the seeds for many student lessons and many student compositions, um, was the Distics of Cato, uh, the Roman philosopher. The Distics are a collection of two-line verse aphorisms, uh, very easy to memorize and easy to drop into persuasive oratory. Uh, they're little nuggets of wisdom like, Spread not vain talk, lest ye be thought it spring. Silence ne'er harms, but speech may trouble bring. Or, Change not known friends for those thou dost not know. Tried friends are sure, untried friends may not be so. You can hear echoes of this grammar school Cato catechism in Polonius's uh, Neither a Borrower Nor a Lender B speech in Hamlet. So this is the matter that Eberhard has to teach to his students day after day, year after year. Parts of speech and slogans off of motivational posters, essentially. Uh, he's not a prestigious university scholar who gets to debate lofty questions of theology or introduce university students to theories of musical or celestial harmony. He's trying to teach this dry, dry stuff to hormone-addled adolescents. It's not too surprising that he feels a bit sorry for himself, um, even while fundamentally believing in the essential virtue of his vocation. Next episode, we'll talk a little bit more about the administration of the grammar school. Um, but for now, let's hear Eberhard explain to us how grammar teachers come into the world. This translation of the Labyrinthus uh, is from an unpublished 1930 master's thesis by Evelyn Carson, or maybe that's Evelyn Carson, um, who was a student at Cornell. Um, this dissertation slash thesis is not readily available, except through academic interlibrary loan, uh, unless, I suppose, you're at Cornell. Uh, it renders Eberhard's Latin verse into um, rather nice English prose. Oh, and a quick cautionary note. Um, in the text that follows, uh, I've included a single fleeting occurrence of a somewhat rude word, a word you can now hear with 
some frequency on basic cable in America, um, but not yet on network television. So if your sensibilities are calibrated to a high degree of delicacy, um, then I apologize for any damage that might be done to them, uh, but I think we'll all be okay. The Labyrinthus of Eberhard Prologue Love of poetry has drawn me on and commanded me to write upon the present theme. O muse, it has dedicated me to you. Because my vigor of mind, moderate as it was, had abated, I was about to lay aside the task imposed upon me. Elegy, observing my mental inertia, said to me, Make a beginning. With God's help, you will finish. Whatever may be the difficulty of the chair from which you firmly direct yourself and your students, you will plow through it, albeit with halting step. The promise of divine assistance moved me. If my reader is indulgent towards my faults, I now write. One, the destiny of the schoolmaster. Mother nature trembles while in a mother's womb she perfects tiny frame of wretched man. If under the membrane she divines the frame of a teacher, she ingeniously interrupts her work. With a sigh, she says, Oh, that the law of work might permit delay in this. Would that my hand could be idle. If no other law than mine were directing me, I might wish to abandon the task of my file. But creative nature commands the hand not to cease where there is matter. And because I am ordered by the king's decree, because I am appointed by the Most High, my task shall reach its end. Your fate calls me. She is unwilling to spare you. She has already spun your thread. She censures my delay. Therefore, you shall be born, wretched one. For you, wretch, the signs and activities at the constellations are shaping the misfortune attendant upon your profession. Written in the stars are poverty, abundance, life of ease, the irritating burden of toil. Written in the stars are a hazard of fame, a pinnacle of glory, a flame of envy, love of applause. Written in the stars are the renown of virtue, the shame of vice, and the long and brief sojourn of life. I have scanned the entire course of the sky, and have failed to find wandering there a constellation kind to you. Behold, the Dionian star, that is Venus, emits no blaze for you, and for you Mercury's splendor does not glitter but Saturn's curved scythe casts a spell upon your years, and for you reddens the treacherous torch of Mars. The whole character of the sky foretells for you hardship by which for all your care you cannot profit. She speaks and hands to the mother of the child the models of his tasks, selected from the foremost part of her brain. At night the mother examines the books. The Pentateuch is not among them, nor are those books celebrated because of the Holy Spirit. She sees not a page of Ptolemy, wherein the heavens are studied, and one may fly in thought among the stars. Euclid's books, thrice five in number, filled with figures which the geometer uses, are not there. No codex of Guido, which influences all work of musical art, appears. The volume which teaches the nature of number in reckoning is not presented to her. 
the two treatises of Cicero, to whom the teacher of rhetoric is a slave, flowery and adorning the beauty of language, are not at hand. No manuscript of Aristotle, him whom philosophy forged in her own bosom, appears among them. Your writings are not revealed to her, O physics, mirror of nature, you who flourish under Galen's leadership. The page of Gratian, nurse of prophet, does not meet her eye. Justinian's parchment remains hidden, and that one which with neither paltry nor meager wisdom discloses such dreams as Scipio saw in sleep is absent. Astronomy, which considers the two colors and the five parallels and the signs of the zodiac, is not in evidence. The mother has not access to Plato's cosmography, which appears under his pupil's name, but she sees the letters of the first little line pupils have as a first step. She turns the pages of Donatus, abundant source of tears, given to boys fresh from the primer. That book, with the torn binding, contains the distichs of Cato. The pupils read them two lines apiece. He is born wailing. Although this be a common omen, this wailing has special signification. He is destined often to see cheeks burdened with tears, but he will not be made lenient by a tear leaping forth. Every male child exclaims, Ah! when he is born, taking it from the name of his first parent, Adam. But this boy, with extraordinary squall, belches forth, Alpha! which letter he chooses in naming the letters one by one for untaught pupils. While in the cradle, still read from his mother, the fickle goddess whose home is the world, that is, fate, says to him, A section of the work has received you. My court places human destinies under my sway. Every lot of mankind yields to me. The portion allotted you by fate holds no good fortune. That a king reigns imperially, that a soldier blossoms forth with fame, that a farmer rejoices in ease, it is all my doing. Through me, the one who ruled is a slave, he who blossomed withers, and the one who was rejoicing grieves in anxiety. Renown increases for the illustrious, wealth accumulates for the grasping, honor accrues to the favored. When I withdraw my favor, renown becomes worthless, wealth decreases, and the peak of honor is leveled. Through me, the flower of rhetoric withers, the grammarian's toil is vain, and the art of speaking is entombed. The acquiescent flatterer is subservient to the one whom I favor. The common people are respectfully compliant, and the cloak of fortune envelops him. I beget joys after tears, after joys, sorrow, night after day, after darkness, radiant sunshine. My greatest recreation is fickleness. The stability of a sphere lies in its perpetual motion. I prophesy that very arduous tasks, which the paltry honor of your chair will effect, are in store for you. He was formerly vigorous, now he languishes. He blossomed forth, now he withers. He gave commands, now he is a slave. Those men flourish who, with the weapons of their tongues, know how to misrepresent righteous causes and to justify unrighteous ones. Those men flourish whom the beating of a weak pulse enriches the color of their urine and shit. Hypocrites flourish, those imitators of true scholars who make shadows with the tree trunk and are slaves to love of money. Jesters flourish, the lowest dregs of mankind whom the crowd flatters and who please their masters with empty chatter. Flatterers flourish, whose tongues produce honey and who overpower unfortunates by treachery. Behold, I am represented as blind because I exalt the blind. I suppress those with clear vision. I foster degenerates. I spurn those who are good.
So Eberhard uh, cuts this section off a bit abruptly, I think. He doesn't quite complete his thought here, which is that the implication of Fate's speech is that she controls all destinies and she's telling him that he in particular, he's screwed. Uh, Worse people are going to be exalted above him and he is going to lose whatever favor he might attain despite his merits. Obviously, there's a certain note of bitterness here, to say the least. Eberhard tells us elsewhere in the Labyrinthus that uh, he studied at Paris and Orleans, um, and yet he has not attained a position as a prestigious university scholar. Instead, he's stuck in a comparatively low-status job as a grammar school master. Um, But at the same time, he goes on a bit later to defend the nobility of the study of grammar, which, after all, is the bedrock skill on which all the rest of the medieval liberal arts are based. We'll hear some of that in our next episode, which takes us through section two of the labyrinth, um, in which the allegorical description of the rearing of a grammar teacher continues as grammar herself personified passes her gifts on to, to Everhard. Then the section wraps up with a pretty fascinating digression into practical advice about how to deal with common classroom problems, including the different kinds of problem students that a teacher is likely to encounter. But that's a teaser for next time. I do want to touch on another quick point, though, before we wrap up. Uh, So that little bit of description there at the end of the text describing a certain class of weak men with weak pulses and richly colored waste products. Uh, Well, our translator, um, Evelyn Carson, in fact, chooses not to translate that phrase with an almost quaint prudishness. Um, You find this use of untranslated references to sex or other taboo functions um, more often among 19th century translators who maintained their moral duty um, by leaving such vulgar things masked behind the shroud of Latin where only the educated and mature could access it. Um, It's slightly stranger to me to find this still going on in something from 1930, um, but I guess on balance it's not not all that surprising. Uh, The dissertation text actually reads, quote, Those men flourish whom the beating of a weak pulse enriches urine sediment Sterculeusque color. The Latin phrase literally translates as uh, the color of the sediment of the urine and the poo. Um, I dropped the sediment bit just for flow in my translation. Uh, presumably, this is a reference to the medical theory of the four humors, which were believed to influence not only health, but personality. And imbalances in the humors could also be diagnosed through the examination of the color and smell of one's urine and excrement. Uh, That said, my rather quick survey of some of the medieval medical texts I have at hand um, shows that they're all over the place in terms of assigning meanings to light and dark urine, Uh, so I'm not really finding any consistent medical lore that sheds particular light on the connection Eberhard is noting between a weak pulse and dark-colored waste. Um, But there are great examples of urine color wheels from medieval manuscripts, which were meant to be used as diagnostic tools. Um, You can find them by searching for medieval uroscopy or uromancy or urinomancy, uh, the latter two terms encompassing not only medical diagnosis, but forms of prognosis that slide straight on over into straight-up fortune-telling territory. 
Uh, uroscopy is one of those interesting elements of ancient medicine that initially seems kind of silly and misguided, um, and certainly the amount of information some ancient physicians thought you could derive just from inspecting a patient's urine was unrealistic, to say the least. But the basic principles of this practice are, of course, validated by um, and continue within modern medicine. You can learn significant things about a patient's health by examining the color and odor of their urine, um, even without resorting to chemical lab tests. And ancient doctors did have one tool of chemical analysis, uh, their own taste buds, which were indeed employed uh, to test the quality of urine and other things. Oh, and before you ask, I did look to see if I could find any examples of medieval charts of poo color, uh, and I could not. But I can report back that you'll want to have a strong stomach indeed if you're going to image search the phrase stool or fecal color. I don't know if a digression on urine and poo is a distraction from the trials of an infant grammar teacher, uh, or if, on the other hand, it's actually entirely appropriate. Um, next time, our baby grammarian is going to be growing up a bit, so hopefully we can have a more mature discussion about bratty students. We had a long riddle last time. Um, it came from the Anglo-Saxon poem, The Dialogue of Solomon and Saturn II, in which the character Saturn asks wise Solomon a number of questions about the nature of the universe and of religion, some of which take on a very riddle-like form. Uh, so here's the riddle, or question, as posed by Saturn, um, from a 1848 translation by John M. Kimball, um, which I had to slightly modernize just to, to make it a bit more readable. Here it is. But what is the wonder that fares throughout the world, fiercely goes, beats the foundations, wakens drops of sorrow, often struggles hither, neither star nor stone nor the lofty gem, water or wild beast may aught escape it. But into its power goes hard and soft, much meat, for its food every year shall go, of those that till the ground, of those that fly the air, of those that swim the water, thrice thirteen thousand in number. So what's the answer? Well, Solomon gives us an answer in a few more lines of verse. Age is on earth, powerful over everything, with its capturing chains of war, with its vast fetter, wide it reaches with its long line, it halters all at will, the tree it crushes and breaks with its twigs, in the stony nest it stirs the prow on its journey, and fells it on the ground, besides that it eats the wild bird, it subdues the wolf in fight, it abides longer than the stones, it overtops the mountain path, it consumes iron with rust, it does us so too. So that's your answer, age. The rather obscure reference to twice 13,000 uh, in the question half of this riddle is uh, apparently a reference to the number of years before doomsday, though apparently it's not meant to be um, an actual specific value, but is rather a kind of poetic hyperbole that really just means lots and lots and plays on an aesthetic affection for multiples of three. Uh, so it'd be like us saying a hundred million billion um, with our affection for big numbers ending in illions. Um, and it's not meant to be a real number. It's just a gesture towards 
a vast count. This explanation is according to Charles D. Wright, uh, whom I had the good fortune to take a class from at the University of Illinois, so I trust his interpretation implicitly. The language and imagery of this riddle uh, and its answer may ring a few bells for some of you. Um, if it sounds familiar, maybe you're remembering this. This thing, horse things, devours, bursts, beasts, trees, flowers, knows iron, bites steel, grinds hot stones to meal, slays king, ruins town, and beats high mountain down. Well, uh, interesting. <laughs> yes, now, uh, let me see. What does it answer? What does it answer? Just a moment now. Mm, my precious, will it taste delicious? Yes, it will. Give me some time. What? What does it say? I said time, time! Whatever is the matter? It, yes! Time is the answer. So that was one of Gollum's riddles to Bilbo Baggins as performed by Brother Theodore and Orson Bean in the uh, lovely uh, 1977 Rankin-Bass animated adaptation of The Hobbit. Uh, Tolkien being a scholar and translator of Anglo-Saxon literature, the resemblances are almost certainly not coincidental. And now it's time to introduce our new riddle. This is a short one, uh, and I'll go ahead and give you um, a hint that the answer is thematically relevant to Eberhard. Here it is. Flat is my top, not flat my base at all. Both ways I'm turned... Nor do my tasks appall, but what one end does, the other can recall. One more time. Flat is my top, not flat my base at all. Both ways I'm turned, nor do my tasks appall. What one end does, the other can recall. I'll be back with the answer and the strange allegory of the milk of grammar in not quite two weeks um, because of our late release of this episode. Uh, we will be back on schedule, I hope, uh, with episode 10 on Monday, March uh, 23rd. Oh, you know, we're just going to miss the equinox. Um, hmm, if I'd realized that earlier, I might have done a different theme. Oh, well, we'll just have to wait uh, six months and come back to that one. Something to look forward to. You can follow us on Twitter, at MDT Podcast, or visit our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com, where you can get more information about the show and leave comments. And you can send me feedback, corrections, and questions by emailing me uh, at Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. That's all for now. Um, and it occurs to me, having started this episode talking about the show's tagline, um, that it might be painfully obvious that I'm in need of a snappy sign-off line, uh, something distinctive, um, but not uh, insufferable. Um, if you have any suggestions, um, tweet them at me. 
Um, and until I find something better to say, I can at least say with sincerity, thanks for listening. <laughs>